Section 15 of Madam How and Lady Why. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Crampton. Sarah'sVoice.net. Madam How and Lady Why by Charles Kingsley. Section 15. Now we are settled in the train. And what do you want to know first? More about the new rocks being lower than the old ones, though they lie on top of them. Well, look here at this sketch. A boy piling up slates? What has that to do with it? I saw you in Ireland piling slates against a rock just in this way, and I thought to myself, that is something like Madame Howe's work. How? Why, see, the old rock stands for the mountains of the old world, like the Welsh mountains or the Mindip hills. The slates stand for the new rocks, which have been piled up against these, one over the other. But you see, each slate is lower than the one before it, and slopes more, till the last slate which you are putting on is the lowest of all, though it overlies all. I see now, I see now. Then look at the sketch of the rocks between this and home. It is only a rough sketch, of course, but it will make you understand something more about the matter. Now, you see the lump marked A, with twisted lines in it. That stands for the Mindip Hills to the west, which are made of old red sandstone, very much the same rock, to speak roughly, as the Kerry Mountains. And why are the lines in it twisted? to show that the strata, the layers in it, are twisted, and set up at quite different angles from the limestone. But how was that done? By old earthquakes and changes which happened in old worlds, ages on ages since. Then the edges of the old red sandstone were eaten away by the sea, and some think by ice too, in some earlier age of ice. And then the limestone coral reef was laid down on them, unconformably, as geologists say, just as you saw the new red sandstone laid down on the edges of the limestone. And so one world is built up on the edge of another world, out of its scraps and ruins. Then do you see B, with a notch in it? That means these limestone hills on the shoulder of the Mindips, and that notch is the gorge of the Avon which we have steamed through. And what is that black above it? That is the coal, a few miles off, marked C. And what is this D which comes next? That is what we are on now. New red sandstone lying unconformably on the coal. I showed it to you in the bed of the river as we came along in the cab. We are here in a sort of amphitheater, or half a one, with the limestone hills around us and the new red sandstone plastered on, as it were, round the bottom of its side. But what is this high bit with E against it? Those are the high hills round Bath, which we shall run through very soon. They are newer than the soil here, and they are, for an exception, higher too, for they are so much harder than the soil here that the sea has not eaten them away, as it has all the lowlands from Bristol right into the Somersetshire flats. There. 
We are off at last and going to run home to reading through one of the loveliest lines, as I think, of old England. And between the intervals of eating fruit, we will geologize on the way home with this little bit of paper to show us where we are. What pretty rocks! Yes, they are a boss of the coal measures, I believe, shoved up with the lias, the lias lying around them. But I warn you, I may not be quite right, because I never looked at a geological map of this part of the line and have learnt what I know, just as I want you to learn, simply by looking out of the carriage window. Look, here is Elias Rock on the side of the cutting. Layers of hard blue limestone, and then layers of blue mud between them, in which, if you could stop to look, you would find fossils in plenty. And along that Lias we shall run to bath, and then all the rocks will change. Now, here we are at bath, and here are the handsome fruit women waiting for you to buy. And, oh, what strawberries and cherries! Yes, all this valley is very rich, and very sheltered, too, and very warm. For the soft southwestern air sweeps it up from the Bristol Channel, so the slopes are covered with fruit orchards, as you will see as you get out of the station. Why, we are above the tops of the houses! Yes, we have been rising ever since we left Bristol, and you will soon see why. Now we have laid in as much fruit as is safe for you, and away we go. Oh, what high hills over the town, and what beautiful stone houses! Even the cottages are built of stone. All that stone comes out of those high hills in which we are going now. It is called Bathstone Freestone, or Oolite, and it lies on the top of the lias which we have just left. Here it is marked F. What steep hills, and cliffs too, and with quarries in them! What can have made them so steep? And what can have made this little narrow valley? Madam Howe's rain-spade from above, I suppose, and perhaps the sea gnawing at their feet below. Those freestone hills once stretched high over our heads, and far away, I suppose, to the westward. Now they are all gnawed out into cliffs. Indeed, gnawed clean through in the bottom of the valley where the famous hot springs break out in which people bathe. Is that why the place is called Bath? Of course. But the old Romans called the place Ache Solis, the waters of the sun. And curious old Roman remains are found here, which we have not time to stop and see. Now look out at the pretty clear limestone stream running to meet us below, and the great limestone hills closing over us above. How do you think we shall get out from among them? Shall we go over their tops? No, that would be too steep a climb for even such a great engine as this. Then there is a crack which we can get through? Look and see. Why, we are coming to a regular wall of hill and, and going right through it in the dark. We are in the box tunnel. There is the light again. And now I suppose you will find your tongue. How long it seemed before we came out. Yes, because you were waiting and watching, with nothing to look at. But the tunnel is only a mile and a quarter long, after all, I believe. If you had been looking at fields and hedgerows all the while, you would have thought no time at all had passed. What curious sandy rocks on each side of the cutting in lines and layers. Those are the freestone still 
and full of fossils they are, but do you see that they dip away from us? Remember that. All the rocks are sloping eastward, the way we are going, and each new rock or soil we come to lies on the top of the one before it. Now we shall run downhill for many a mile, down the back of the Oolites, past pretty Chippenham, and Wooten Bassett toward Swindon Spire. Look at the country, child, and thank God for this fair English land in which your lot is cast. What beautiful green fields! And such huge elm trees, and orchards, and flowers in the cottage gardens! Ay, and what crops, too! What wheat and beans, turnip and mangold! All this land is very rich and easily worked, and hereabouts is some of the best farming in England. The agricultural college at Cirencester, of which you have so often heard, lies thereaway, a few miles to our left. And there lads go to learn to farm as no men in the world, save English and Scotch, know how to farm. But what rock are we on now? On rock that is much softer than that on the other side of the Oolite Hills, much softer because it is much newer. We have got off the Oolites onto what is called the Oxford Clay, and then, I believe, on to the Coral Rag, and on that again lies what we are coming to now. Do you see the red sand in that field? Then that is the lowest layer of a fresh world, so to speak, a world still younger than the Oolites, the chalk world. But that is not chalk, or anything like it. No, that is what is called green sand. But it is not green, it is red. I know, but years ago it got the name from one green vein in it, in which the coprolites, as you learnt to call them at Cambridge, are found, and that and a little layer of blue clay called galt between the upper green sand and lower green sand runs along everywhere at the foot of the chalk hills. I see the hills now. Are they chalk? Yes, chalk they are. So we may begin to feel near home now. See how they range away to the south towards Devies and Westbury and Warminster, a goodly land and large. At their feet, everywhere, run the rich pastures on which the Wiltshire cheese is made. And here and there, as at Westbury, there is a good iron ore in the green sand, which is being smelted now, as it used to be in the weld of Surrey and Kent ages since. I must tell you about that some other time. But are there coprolites here? I believe there are. I know there are some at Swindon, and I do not see why they should not be found here and there, all the way along the foot of the downs, from here to Cambridge. But do these downs go to Cambridge? Of course they do. We are now in the great valley which runs right across England from south-west to north-east, from Axminster to Devonshire to Hunstanton on Norfolk, with the chalk always on your right hand, and the Oolite Hills on your left, till it ends by sinking into the sea among the fins of Lincolnshire and Norfolk. But what made that great valley? I am not learned enough to tell. Only this I think we can say that once on a time these chalk downs on our right reached high over our heads here, and far to the north, and that Madam Howe pared them away, whether by icebergs or by sea waves, or merely by rain, I cannot tell. Well, those downs do look very like sea cliffs. So they do, very like an old shoreline. 
Be that as it may, after the chalk was eaten away, Madame Howe began digging into the soils below the chalk, on which we are now. And because they were mostly soft clays, she cut them out very easily, till she came down, or nearly down, to the harder freestone rocks which run along on our left hand, miles away. And so she scooped out this great vale, which we call here the Vale of White Horse and further on the Vale of Aylesbury, and then the Bedford Level, and then the dear ugly old Finns. Is this the Vale of White Horse? Oh, I know about it. I've read the scouring of the White Horse. Of course you have, and when you are older you will read a jollier book still, Tom Brown's School Days, and when we have passed Swindon we shall see some of the very places he described in it, close on our right. There is the White Horse Hill. The White Horse Hill. But where is the horse? I can see a bit of him, but he does not look like a horse from here, or indeed from any other place. He is a very old horse indeed, and a thousand years of wind and rain have spoilt his anatomy a good deal on the top of that wild down. And is that really where Alfred fought the Danes? As certainly, boy, I believe, is that Waterloo is where the Duke fought Napoleon. Yes, you may well stare at it with all your eyes, the noble down. It is one of the most sacred spots on English soil. Oh, it's gone now. The train runs so fast. So it does. Too fast to let you look long at one thing. But in return it lets you see so many more things in a given time than the slow old coaches and posters did. Well, what is it? I wanted to ask you a question, but you won't listen to me. Won't I? I suppose I was dreaming with my eyes open. You see, I've been so often along this line, and through this country, too, long before the line was made, that I cannot pass it without its seeming full of memories, perhaps of ghosts. Of real ghosts? As real ghosts, I suspect, as any one on earth ever saw. Faces and scenes which have printed themselves so deeply on one's brain that when one passes the same place long years after, they start up again, out of fields and roadsides, as if they were alive once more, and need sound sense to send them back again into their place as things which are past forever, for good and ill. But what did you want to know? Why, I am so tired of looking out the window, and it's all the same. Fields and hedges, hedges and fields, and I want to talk. Fields and hedges, hedges and fields. Peace and plenty, plenty and peace. However, it may seem dull, now that the grass is cut, but you would not have said so two months ago when the fields were all golden green with buttercups and the white-thorn hedges like crested waves of snow. I should like to take a foreigner down the Vale of Berkshire at the end of May, and ask him what he thought of old England. But what shall we talk about? I want to know about coprolites, if they dig them here as they do at Cambridge. I don't think they do, but I suspect they will some day. But why do people dig them? Because they are rational men and want manure for their fields. But what are coprolites? Well... They were called coprolites at first because some folk fancied that they were the leavings of fossil animals, such as you may really find in the lias at Lynn in Dorsetshire. But they are not that. 
and all we can say is that a long time ago, before the chalk began to be made, there was a shallow sea in England, the shore of which was so covered with dead animals that the bone-earth, the phosphate of lime, out of them crusted itself round every bone and shell and dead sea-beast on the shore, and got covered up with fresh sand and buried for ages as a mine of wealth. But how many millions of dead creatures there must have been! What killed them? We do not know. No more do we know how it comes to pass that this thin band, often only a few inches thick, of dead creatures could stretch all the way from Dorsetshire to Norfolk, and I believe up through Lincolnshire. And what is stranger still, this same bone-earth bed crops out at the south side of the chalk at Farnham, and stretches along the foot of those downs right into Kent, making the richest hop-lands in England, through Surrey and away to Tunbridge so that it seems as if the bed lay under the chalk everywhere, if once we could get down to it. But how does it make the hoplands so rich? Because hops, like tobacco and vines, take more phosphorus out of the soil than any other plants which we grow in England, and it is the washings of this bone-earth bed which makes the lower lands in Farnham so unusually rich, that in some of them, the garden, for instance, under the bishop's castle, have grown hops without resting, I believe, for three hundred years. But who found out all this about the coprolites? Ah, I will tell you, and show you how scientific men, whom ignorant people sometimes laugh at as dreamers, and mere pickers-up of useless weeds and old stones, may do real service to their country and their countrymen, as I hope you will some day. There was a clergyman named Hinslow, now with God, honoured by all scientific men, a kind friend and teacher of mine, loved by every little child in his parish. His calling was botany, but he knew something of geology, and some of these coprolites were brought to him as curiosities because they had fossils in them. But he, so the tale goes, had the wit to see that they were not, like other fossils, carbonate of lime, but phosphate of lime, bone earth whereon he told the neighbouring farmers that they had a mine of wealth open to them if they would but use them for manure. And after a while he was listened to. Then others began to find them in the eastern counties, and then another man, as learned and wise as he was good and noble, John Payne of Farnham, also now with God, found them on his own estate, and made much use and much money of them. And now tens of thousands of pounds worth of valuable manure are made out of them every year, in Cambridgeshire and Bedfordshire, by digging them out of land which was till lately only used for common farmers' crops. But how do they turn coprolites into manure? I used to see them in the railway trucks at Cambridge, and they were all like what I have at home, hard pebbles. They grind them first in a mill. Then they mix them with sulfuric acid and water, and that melts them down and parts them into two things. One is sulfate of lime, gypsum as it is commonly called, and which will not dissolve in water and is of little use. But the other is what is called superphosphate of lime, which will dissolve in water, so that the roots of the plants can suck it up, and that is one of the richest of manures. Oh, I know. You put superphosphate on the grass last year. Yes, but not that kind, a better one still. The superphosphate from the copiolites is good, but the superphosphate from fresh bones is better still, 
and therefore dearer because it has in it the fibrin of the bones, which is full of nitrogen like gristle or meat, and all that has been washed out of the bone-earth bed ages and ages ago. But you must learn some chemistry to understand that. I should like to be a scientific man, if one can find out such really useful things by science. Child, there is no saying what you might find out, or of what use you may be to your fellow men. A man working at science, however dull and dirty his work may seem at times, is like one of those chiffoniers, as they called them in Paris, people who spend their lives in gathering rags and sifting refuse, but who may put their hands at any moment upon some precious jewel. And not only may you be able to help your neighbors to find out what will give them health and wealth, but you may, if you can only get them to listen to you, save them from many a foolish experiment which ends in losing money just for want of science. I have heard of a man who, for want of science, was going to throw away great sums. I believe he, luckily for him, never could raise the money, in boring for coal in our bagshut sands at home. The man thought that because there was coal under the heather moors in the north, there must needs be coal here likewise, when a geologist could have told him the contrary. There was another man at Hinnikin's Lodge, near the Wellington College, who thought he would make the poor sands fertile by manuring them with whale-oil, of all things in the world. So, he not only lost all the cost of his whale-oil, but he made the land utterly barren, as it is unto this day, and all for want of science." And I knew a manufacturer, too, who went to bore an artesian well for water, and hired a regular well-borer to do it. But, meanwhile, he was wise enough to ask a geologist of those parts how far he thought it was down to the water. The geologist made his calculations and said, "'You will go through so many feet of bagshot sand, and so many feet of London clay, and so many feet of the thanet beds between them and the chalk, and then you will win water.' at about four hundred twelve feet, but not, I think, till then. The well-sinker laughed at that, and said, he had no opinion of geologists and such like. He never found any clay in England but what he could get through in a hundred fifty feet. So he began to bore. One hundred fifty feet, two hundred, three hundred, and then he began to look rather silly. At last, at four o five, only seven feet short of what the geologist had foretold, up came the water in a regular sprout. But, lo and behold, not expecting to have to bore so deep, he had made his bore much too small, and the sand out of the thanet beds blew up into the bore and closed it. The poor manufacturer spent hundreds of pounds more in trying to get the sand out, but in vain, and he had at last to make a fresh and much larger well by the side of the old one, bewailing the day when he listened to the well-sinker and not to the geologist, and so threw away more than a thousand pounds. And there is an answer to what you asked on board the yacht. What use was there in learning little matters of natural history and science which seemed of no use at all? And now look out again. Do you see any change in the country? What? Why, there to the left— There are high hills there now, as well as to the right. What are they? Chalk hills, too. The chalk is on both sides of us now. These are the Chilterns, all the way to Ipston and Nettlebed, and so on across Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire and into Hertfordshire. 
and on again to Royston and Cambridge, while below them lies the Vale of Aylesbury. You can just see the beginning of it on their left. A pleasant land are those hills, and wealthy, full of noble houses buried in the deep beech woods, which once were a great forest, stretching in a ring round the north of London, full of deer and boar, and of wild bulls too, even as late as the twelfth century, according to the old legend of Thomas Becket's father and the fair Saracen, which you have often heard. I know, but how are you going to get through the chalk hills? Is there a tunnel as there is at Box and at Mitcheldever? No, something much prettier than a tunnel, and something which took a great many years longer in making. We shall soon meet with a very remarkable and famous old gentleman, who is a great adept at digging, and at landscape gardening likewise. And he has dug out a path for himself through the chalk, which we shall take the liberty of using also. And his name, if you wish to know it, is Father Tem. I see him! What a great river! Yes, here he comes, gleaming and winding down from Oxford, over the lowlands, past Wallingford. But where he is going to, it is not so easy to see. Ah, here is chalk in the cutting at last. And what a high bridge! And the river far under our feet. Why, we are crossing him again! Yes, he winds more sharply than a railroad can. But is not this prettier than a tunnel? Oh, what hanging woods and churches, and such great houses and pretty cottages and gardens, all in this narrow crack of a valley. Aye, old Father Tem is a good landscape gardener, as I said. There is Basildon and Hurley and Pangburn with its roaring lasher. Father Tem has had to work hard for many an age before he could cut this trench right through the chalk and drain the water out of the flat vale behind us. But I suspect the sea helped him somewhat, or perhaps a great deal, just where we are now. The sea? Yes. The sea was once, and that not so very long ago, right up here beyond reading. This is the uppermost end of the great Tem Valley, which must have been an estuary, a tide-flat like the mouth of the Severn, with the sea eating along at the foot of all the hills. And if the land sunk only some fifty feet, which is a very little indeed, child, in this huge, ever-changing world— then the tide would come up to reading again, and the greater part of London and the county of Middlesex be drowned in salt water. How dreadful that would be! Dreadful indeed. God grant that it may never happen. More terrible changes of land and water have happened and are happening still in the world. But none, I think, could happen which would destroy so much civilization, and be such a loss to mankind as that the Tem Valley should become again what it was, geologically speaking, only the other day, when these gravel banks over which we are running to reading were being washed out of the chalk cliffs up above at every tide, and rolled on a beach as you have seen them rolling still at Ramsgate. Now here we are at reading. There is the carriage waiting, and away we are off home. And when we get home and have seen everybody and everything, we will look over our section once more. But remember, that when you ran through the chalk hills to Reading, you passed from the bottom of the chalk to the top of it, on to the Thames gravel which lay there on the chalk, and on to the London clay which lies on the chalk also, with the Thames gravels always over it. So that, you see, the newest layers, the London clay and the gravels, are lower in height than the limestone cliffs at Bristol, and much lower than the old mountain ranges of Devonshire and Wales, though in geological order they are far higher. 
and there whole worlds of strata, rocks, and clays, one on the other between the Thame gravels and the Devonshire hills. But how about our moors? They are newer still, you said, than the London clay, because they lie upon it, and yet they are much higher than we are here at Reading. Very well said. So they are, two or three hundred feet higher. But our part of them was left behind, standing up in the banks, while the valley of the Thames was being cut out by the sea. Once they spread all over where we stand now, and away behind us, beyond Newbury and Berkshire, and away in front of us, all over where London now stands. How can you tell that? Because there are little caps, little patches of them, left on the tops of many hills to the north of London, just remnants which the sea and the Thames and the rain have not eaten down. Probably they once stretched right out to sea, sloping slowly under the waves where the mouth of the Thames is now. You know the sand cliffs at Burnmouth? Of course. Then those are of the same age as the bagshot sands, and lie on the London clay and slope down off the new forest into the sea, which eats them up, as you know, year by year and day by day. And here were once perhaps cliffs just like them, where London Bridge now stands. There we are rumbling away home at last, over the dear old heather moors. How far we have travelled, in our fancy at least, since we began to talk about all these things upon the foggy November day, and first saw Madame Howe digging at the sandbakes with her water-spade. How many countries we have talked of, and what wonderful questions we have got answered, which all grew out of the first question, how were the heather moors made? And yet— we have not talked about a hundredth part of the things about which these very heathermoors ought to set us thinking. But so it is, child. Those who wish honestly to learn the laws of Madam Howe, which we call nature, by looking honestly at what she does, which we call fact, have only to begin by looking at the very smallest thing, pin's head or pebble, at their feet, and it may lead them. Whither? They cannot tell. To answer any one question, you find you must answer another, and to answer that, you must answer a third, and then a fourth, and so on for ever and ever. For ever and ever? Of course. If we thought and searched over the universe, I, I believe, only over this one little planet called Earth, for millions on millions of years, we should not get to the end of our searching. The more we learnt, the more we should find there was left to learn. All things we should find are constituted according to a divine and wonderful order, which links each thing to every other thing, so that we cannot fully comprehend any one thing without comprehending all things. And who can do that, save he who made all things? Therefore our true wisdom is never to fancy that we do not comprehend, never to make systems and theories of the universe, as they are called, as if we had stood by and looked on when time and space began to be, but to remember that those who say they understand show simply by so saying that they understand nothing at all, that those who say they see are sure to be blind, while those who confess that they are blind are sure some day to see. All we can do is to keep up the childlike heart, humble and teachable, though we grew as wise as Newton or as Humboldt, and to follow, as good Socrates bids us, reason, whithersoever it leads us, sure that it will never lead us wrong, unless we have darkened it by hasty and conceited fancies of our own, 
and so have become like those foolish men of old, of whom it was said that the very light within them was darkness. But if we love and reverence and trust fact and nature, which are the will, not merely of Madam How or even of Lady Why, but of Almighty God Himself, then we shall be really loving and reverencing and trusting God, and we shall have our reward by discovering continually fresh wonders and fresh benefits to man, and find it as true of science as it is of this life and of the life to come, that eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. End of section 15. Recording by Sarah Crampton. Sarah'sVoice.net. End of Madam How and Lady Why by Charles Kingsley.